Oh, Father, we would show you our love through our obedience, and we only know how to obey you because of our Bibles. And so we turn our attention to this great book, grateful for your instruction, grateful for how your Holy Spirit, through your grace, takes it and you write upon the tablets of our hearts and, and out of that springs a lifestyle pleasing to Jesus. Thank you most of all for the great salvation that we have in Christ, the great transformation that has taken place. Father, we uh, uh, give ourselves now to the hearing and then following this hour to the doing of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn back to that story that we looked at last week. It's Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, it is called the parable of the talents. And we are talking about a word, do you remember it? It is potential. We're talking about the month of January. What is it that God has for us to do? And how is it that we can live out this God-assigned, God-given ability to live up to the expectation of our master? I have to tell you that I've been doing something that I wouldn't do if my dad were still here. He's been with the Lord 12 years. And I have been, in the last week or so, burning black walnut in my wood stove. Out in the church woods was a pretty good-sized walnut tree that broke in half about, oh, 14, 16 feet up. And it sat there, it stood there, broken and dead for a number of years and began to rot from the top down. And I decided the other day that I would, uh, for convenience, cut it, whack it up, split it, and throw it in the stove and keep Janny Baby warm with it. Now, what's wrong with burning black walnut? The reason we don't burn black walnut or like to burn black walnut, first of all, it's not the best burning wood. It's quick and hot, but it doesn't last very long. Is that to take a black walnut log cut it up into pieces and split it up and throw it in the stove is for this hunk of black walnut to serve far below its potential. Think about it. For just a few minutes, it throws off some BTUs and then it's gone, transformed into ash and smoke and heat, and it's gone. The potential of black walnut, oh, it's a woodmaker's delight, a woodworker's delight. If my dad were here and he saw that log, we would have had to piece it together, maybe cut it with a chainsaw, maybe find the the neighbor and have him cut it into rough sawn boards, and then it would be up in the rafters of his garage where I would have taken care of it after he died. But how much greater of a use, how much greater is it to take black walnut, saw it into boards, and then turn it into some kind of an heirloom jewelry box, maybe. Maybe a gun stock, a beautiful gun stock. That's what black walnuts used a lot for. Maybe an heirloom dining room table. That's potential, isn't it? That's potential. Taking something that exists within, something that is there that can be produced, something that it is good for, and instead of using it for a lesser cause... Instead of taking an easier way, instead of a convenient, ah, it's okay attitude, we would handle it carefully. We would process it with detail. And then it might last for decades, generations, hundreds of years. Reaching its potential. 
That's how we're trying to think about our church this January. We believe that God has blessed us in so many ways. And before we return to the book of Genesis in February, we want to think about some ways that God might want to work through us and we might pay attention to some things that perhaps we've grown complacent about so that we will not live and serve our Lord and Master at a lesser level. Let's go to our text and remind ourselves of this story. What we're doing here is we're inserting ourselves into the text. Even before we reread part of it, and we'll not read all of it, we'll use this as a foundation for further teachings of our Master, the Lord Jesus. But we're inserting ourselves into the text. In the story, there is a master and he's going on a long journey and we determined last week with agreement that that represents our Lord Jesus, doesn't it? And in the same way that he went up into heaven, he's going to come back again. And he's on a long journey and we don't know when he's going to return. And we are servants in his kingdom. We're part of his church, as part of his kingdom and we're servants of the living Christ. And he's tasked us He's given us responsibility. So by nature of the text and by nature of the topic, I am largely speaking to those of you in the room this morning who do know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have come to a place where you have looked at Jesus and you've recognized that He is your Savior by going to the cross, being nailed by those Roman soldiers on the cross. He became your sin bearer and then He was your substitute. Now, you don't have to pay the penalty for your own sin and you've entered into new life in Christ by grace, through faith, in what Jesus did on the cross through the love of God. And that's that verse John 3.16 that we often quote, that God loved the world so much. That's you and, that's you and me. That's you and, and me. And he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's all of us, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the only way, the only truth, the only life is through Jesus Christ. And when we accept that salvation, the Bible says we're a new creation in Christ. We have new goals, new perspective, a new way of thinking. The Spirit of God indwells us. We have the ability to obey the Word of God, whereas before, without the Spirit of God, by and large, we didn't care about the Word of God. And here we are. But our Master's gone on a long journey. So let's reread the text just a little bit, remind ourselves of a couple things. As we've inserted ourselves in it, we know the master is Jesus and we know the servants represents us. And let's draw a few few reminding and concluding remarks from it and then we'll move on. Will you stand with me and stretch a minute as we read God's word together? I will read for you Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, and to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. You see, the master knew his people, didn't he? He knew his men. He knew what they could handle. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once, put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more, but the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more for you. 
His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And the man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The next guy is the one who received the one. He comes in, admits that he just buried it for security. The master calls him wicked and lazy. We jump down to verse 29. For everyone who has will be given more. And he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Ends up throwing that worthless servant out into darkness after he took away the given responsibility or given amount of talent and money and gave it over to the man who could produce. What an incredible story. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, let's summarize what we've gotten out of this story and remind ourselves that there's uh, at least three things that we see happening in our story this morning. Before we do that, though, let me remind you that this story is an actual story that Jesus told, and it's part of a discourse where he was reminding his disciples of how to live in the last days. And that is, it is a message of preparedness, and it is a message of looking up. And that was what last week's title was, living so that we're looking up looking for the return of our Lord Jesus, our master who has gone away. We don't know when he's coming back. We do know this from the story, though. Number one, we know that, he, that the story shows that there has been a delegation of responsibility, a delegation of responsibility. That is that the servants in the story don't own the materials. It belongs to the master, doesn't it? He has entrusted them with this volume of money is what it amounts to in the story, these talents, a weight of silver. He has delegated to them the stewardship of responsibility of this valued material. It is implicit in the story that, number two, there is an expectation that came along with the delegation. He delegated it to them. He's not doing it himself. He's leaving it up to them. And there is an expectation... We see in the story, don't we, that when the master comes back, that uh, he expected them to produce. He expected them to take what he had given them and do something with it. They were not to be complacent. In fact, they were condemned in the story, weren't they, for complacency, for ho-hum. It doesn't really matter. I don't really have to worry about my master. I'll just bury it in the ground. To return to him, what you started out receiving was not good enough. He was to take the given responsibilities, the given goods, and produce with it. To do nothing is not what the master had in mind. Would you agree with me? To do nothing is not what the master had in mind in this story. So he delegates. So there's a delegation of responsibility. Then there is an expectation on that delegated responsibility. A clear agenda, be productive. Let's remind ourselves that if we're the servants, indeed, God has blessed us at a great level, hasn't he? He has resourced us. We talked last week about the fact that the greatest 
representation of the talent, if you want to draw a parallel, okay, what does the talent given to the servants represent to us? It first and foremost is the very word of God containing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the words of eternal life. We have no more valuable resource than that. But further, I think that there is an application of all that God has blessed us with. All of the material goods, everything that we have, even our children, our homes, our cars, our jobs, our brains, everything comes from God, doesn't it? You didn't get it yourself. You didn't wake up one morning and decide who you were going to be. God has blessed you. He's given you the ability to work hard and to think and to grow and to develop. And you are a steward of those responsibilities. You were given these things. What are you doing? There is a delegation to all of us, all that we have. And I think in a broader application that Fellowship Bible Church has been given by our master a great responsibility. 50 acres. A huge kid's play set. A ball field. Room to expand. Gifted people within the body to resource the body of Christ. The ability to move out, to support missionaries, to plant churches, to do evangelism, to encourage the weary and the weak, to feed the poor, to take care of the homeless. We have been resourced to do the work of our master. He's on a long journey. We're his servants. He's delegated. He's coming with an expectation. You better produce. And thirdly, in our story, we see that there is ultimately an evaluation, isn't there? The master, after a long time, comes back. And then there's an examination or an evaluation. The question is, what did you do with all that I gave you? What did you do with all that I lent to you? How have you used your resources? What have you done for eternity? These assets were never given to the stewards, were they? The servants didn't own anything. They were entrusted. Sam Erickson has a saying that he uses over and over, always stewards, never owner. We live as stewards, not owners, responsible to answer to our master. Well, there's the foundation of our message today, the parable of the talents. Given this great resource that we have. I think it's important for us now to think about the fact that though we've been reminded last week that we need to live looking up, there is a day of appointment. We don't know when that will be. We received a phone call that for Sam himself, back in that back bedroom, down the hall, to the right, in that hospital bed, his appointment may very well have taken place already this morning. And it's over. And he will meet his master The servant will go to the master. If the master doesn't come to the servant, the servant will certainly go to the master. It's the way of all men. We don't know when that's going to be. I know for Sam that his work wasn't done. In his mind, his work wasn't done. He had so much more he wanted to do. So, you know, continents to conquer. What a guy, right? There will be people that will need to step in his shoes to fill in the gaps. But the master said, that's enough. My days written in your book have come to an end today. Perhaps today. Perhaps today. And then it's accountability. So how do we take it to the next level? 
We want to live looking up. But we've been entrusted with all this stuff in the meantime, and if the master hasn't come back, then how do I now live here as a steward, as a servant of all that my master has entrusted me? Look, live looking up, but today our challenge is to live living light. Because our problem is what? Our problem is we get confused. We think that this world is what it's all about. And we encumber ourselves so heavily that we can barely function as servants. And so let's go directly to the instruction of the master himself. And this could very well be part of the instruction that the master in Matthew 25 gave to his servants. We find this teaching from our master, the Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6. And so let's turn there. This again is a very familiar, if not overly used passage... However, just like the Matthew 25 passage, it is life-impacting and it is incredibly powerful and interruptive to the status quo if we will heed it. The section in my Bible, beginning with verse 19, is entitled, Treasures in Heaven. Verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6 through verse 24. Look what it says. These are the master's instructions. Before I read it, let me say this. We're interrupting a section of teaching of our Lord Jesus that is called the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard of that, haven't you? It was early in the teaching ministry of our Lord Jesus. You can picture him maybe sitting on a hillside. Crowds have gathered, and this marvelous teaching is coming out. And it's the beginning of his earthly ministry. And I want to tell you something. It's included in the passages and teaching of our Lord that we would call some of the hard sayings of Christ. It is radical. It is interruptive. It is not the norm. It flies in the face of standard thinking and accepted thinking. Everything is different. This is the passage. You know some of these verses. This is the passage that says, if somebody hits you in the jaw or the cheek, turn the other cheek. You've got to be kidding me. It's not how I operate. It's not how the world operates. Oh, it's what the master said to do. I, my servants, they're different. They're different. It's the one where he said, if your neighbor takes you to court and sues you for your coat, go into the court, give him your coat, and then take your shirt off and give him your shirt. You've got to be kidding me. And so as we read this passage, you need to understand that this teaching is clicking off and every bit of it is hitting them in the face The listener in the face like, you've got to be kidding me. And this passage as well as he goes right through it. Do not store up for yourselves, verse 19, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
Putting this into the context of Matthew 25, where we've just come from, it's as though the master, as he gave out the talents to the servants, said, now I remind you before I go on my journey, and I'm gone a long time, that you can either serve me or you can serve the talents. You cannot serve both. You cannot ride both of these horses. You have to choose which one you're going to ride. And so we receive this as instructions from the master. How do we live now with eternity in view? What does that look like? How does it impact my life? How does it affect the way I think? How does it affect my day-to-day decision-making? How do I, as a steward, accomplish the goal of living productively for the master so that at his return, I can do like the servant did in the passage with the five and with the two. I have doubled it. I have taken what you've given me. I have produced. And he will say, well done. And then he will say what we talked about last week that we don't think enough about. You come. You come and enter into my joy. Heaven's going to be great but it's going to be especially great for those who make it into heaven because we all only make it by grace, through faith, by no merit of our own, based on the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But why muck around entrapped with the things of this world and get to heaven and have to watch from the balcony as Jesus says, well done. Do you know what it's going to feel like? To want to hear Jesus say, well done, and to know that you wasted your whole life, you'll say, doesn't matter, I'm in heaven, that's all that matters, baby. I know, manna pizza, 55-gallon drums of Mountain Dew, it's going to be great. (laughs) But I'm telling you, and you guys who know what it's like to be on a team know this feeling, especially girls too, but you guys know what it's like to be on a football team or a cross-country team or a baseball team. There's been a big battle. There's been a great game. You've come out victorious. You're sitting there at the coach's meeting, and he calls out a couple of you, and he says, well done. That diving catch and that throw you made was a game changer. Man, feels great, doesn't it? Feels great. And I think we don't focus enough on the reality of the fact that the servant always lives for the affirmation of the master. Speaking to Christians. Well, let's receive the master's instruction, shall we? The first thing that I see in this passage that he's instructed us is that this instruction is unnatural to us. It's an unnatural instruction. Notice what it says. I've always kind of, already kind of referenced this fact with the backwards teaching of Christ. Hit the cheek, turn the other cheek, don't punch back. Everything's backwards with Jesus. And in verse 19, it's no different. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't do this. It's a clear directive, isn't it? I know that the Bible's hard to understand in some places, but that's not hard to understand. The master has made himself clear. But but this is so unnatural to us, isn't it? Isn't everything in us designed to want to collect more, more, more? The word here in the Greek that is do not store and treasure is actually the same root word. It it would be an accurate translation to say do not treasure up treasures. You follow me? 
And it also implied in the grammar, it's also implied that it's the idea of setting things in rows. Like I'm going to treasure up my treasures and I'm going to put it in rows for display. My collection. I was with Janet Thursday night. Always a great privilege when she lets me take her out. And um, I always want to and she doesn't always want to go. But anyway, (laughs) you guys know how to try to date your wife. She doesn't want to go out for dinner and things. I know. Guys, it's tough being a guy. But... um, so Thursday night, we're at Cracker Barrel, and uh, then we go over to the Martinsburg Mall, and much to my delight, um, because it meant that I did not have to stay with her in the ladies' department of the Bonton, she sent me on an errand in the mall, and so I had to take a Christmas gift of hers over to the J.C. Penney store, and I was standing at the counter there, and... Um, Uh, The lady had to take care of another customer before she took care of me, and I noticed that I was in the men's clothing department, okay? Now, um, I'm pretty good at avoiding the mall and not shopping, but I happened to notice something that I like. I noticed racks filled with shirts, men's shirts. Not dress shirts, but flannel, heavier flannel kind of shirts, good shirts, okay? And I looked over there and I thought, that's a really nice looking shirt. And so there, was no other, there were no other customers and she was busy. And so I looked and I realized, what a deal. They were like $39 shirts and they were eight bucks, $8. And immediately I knew what I was going to do. I thought to myself, I'm going to run back to the Bonton. I'm going to get in the cash envelope from Janie, get her a 20. She'll say, it's too good of a deal to pass up. I'm going to run back there and I'm going to buy me a shirt. Maybe two shirts because I like that one too. And then it hit me. And I'm telling you, and clothes don't do a whole lot for me, but I literally, and I had been thinking and processing this passage already in the week, and I literally, maybe you know this feeling, felt an emotional gut response when I told myself that I would not allow myself to go buy those shirts. And I asked myself the question, why should I buy that shirt? Well, it's a no-brainer. It's eight bucks, and it's a $39 shirt. But what you have to understand is that I have a closet full of shirts. I have 30 shirts. Not dirty shirts, 30 shirts. All right? I've got nice Woolrich chamois shirts that I hardly ever wear. I've got nice West Virginia sweatshirt I hardly ever wear. My denim shirt, I hardly ever wear it. Why should I buy another shirt and put it in the closet? Pastor Van, it's only $8. You can't pass it up. Yes, I can pass that up. That is the concept here. It is gathering, accumulating, hoarding. It's the idea of, why do you need it? What are you going to do with it? We can do that. Now, there is, in the Greek, an exception for guns and tools. Yeah. You all know that I'm a big Greek scholar. And that I graduated at the top of my class, baby. That's a lie if you don't know me very well. It's only by the grace of God that you let me in here on Sundays. And it really doesn't say that in the Greek. But that's what we do, right? That's what's natural to us. It is I like it, I collect it, I buy more, I set it on the shelf. You know what? He said, he said don't do this. 
Don't do this. You see, because not only is it unnatural, but number two, it is countercultural, this teaching, isn't it? Because we have to fight the culture. We have to fight the system in which we live where we are bombarded with messages daily that you need to do this. Why do I need to do this? Because it's a great deal. And the very fact that it's a great deal, and you know it, you're out there, you know you can't pass up a great deal. Pass them up. Don't hoard. What for? You fill your basement, fill your garage, fill the closet, fill the shed, and then go rent a storage unit. And then someday, what do your kids do? They get rid of it, pennies to the pound, what you hoarded, what you gathered, what you cared so much, and I've watched it. I've stood on the sidelines and I've watched kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews walk on the garage floor of precious family photos and embroideries from Aunt Matilda that were strewn out and they gather it up with a scoop shovel and put it in the back of the flea market man's truck and sell everything they didn't want to pick and take it away after you're gone and sell the whole load for 25 bucks to the flea market guy. And you spent your whole life gathering that stuff. And that's what it means. Things that rust and that moths eat. Those were word pictures that the people of that day could clearly understand. Almost all their clothing was wool in content and fabric and moths loved to eat it and a beautiful fabric, a beautiful garment, which was expensive for them and hard to come by, would have a hole eaten through it or a thief would come and steal it. Dirty birds. Or it rusts away. But the world says... More, 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 more. Get more, get more. This is really important. It's going to make you feel good. You're going to like it. You really want it. You really need it. For what? I already have seven of them. Sixteen of them. We won't even begin to talk about shoes, will we, girls? (laughs) He said pocketbooks. I remember when I was a youth pastor in Pennsylvania years ago, I was teaching this passage to a bunch of teenagers. And out behind the barn of this guy in our church was some old wrecked cars. They weren't wrecked. They were rusting out cars. I went down there and I took the mower. The horse weeds were high and everything. I mowed and threw down some blankets and loaded the teens on a bus and brought them down there and sat them down right in front. Uh, I forget the year, but I remember the car. It was a Javelin. Do you remember Javelins? Hey, AMC, baby. Do you even know what AMC is? American Motors. That says it all, doesn't it? That's why you don't know about it. All right. So we're sitting on a blanket in front of this javelin, and I remember thinking to myself, I can't remember anymore if it was only 12 years old or 16 years old. It was less than 20 years old. A javelin, by the way, was a kind of a cool car. I don't remember much about it, but I remember seeing them, and I remember that my brother-in-law used to really like javelins and talk about them. They're kind of a cool car. It's sitting in the weeds behind the barn 14 years, 14 years after it came off the assembly line and smelled so good, man, and was in the showroom. And some guy walks up to him and says, hey, baby, I got to have this one right here. And in 14 years, it's out behind the barn with horse weeds growing up around it. And nobody cares about it. And how much of your life did you sink into that thing? See, that's what happens, isn't it? I got to have it. I got to do it. Okay, so it's, unnatural to us this teaching it is countercultural to us this teaching but as we move to the next verse verse 20 notice that this is a teaching that involves the supernatural it involves the supernatural 
but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay, here's the contrast, but. Some of you guys on Wednesday night are learning the importance of these words, aren't you? And it's a transition. Here's the thought, but I'm going to interrupt that thought and I'm inserting now the point. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? That if there's a place to invest that is eternal or there's a place to invest that is temporary, that we would automatically choose the eternal, right? But you will never do it if you don't think in terms of the supernatural. What am I talking about? You guys are weird, right? Because supernatural, woo! I'm talking about the fact that you have got to see the invisible. That gets even weirder, doesn't it? You mean at Fellowship Bible Church, you believe that you can see things that are invisible. Yes, I do. Pastor Man. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Will you turn with me, please? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Notice this incredible passage of Scripture. Some of you who are going through difficult times is a very, very encouraging passage. Very encouraging. Our point is that if you are stuck in this world and you don't see the next world, that's the supernatural, you will never get the teaching of our master. Beginning with verse 16 for the context, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Anybody amen to that? Yet inwardly we are renewed day by day. How about an amen to that? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Here's our verse. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You got it? You got it? He's saying that if you live for the reality of only what you can see and touch, that you're missing the greater reality of the unseen world. That is the heavenly kingdom. That is where we meet with our master and we have treasure there that is sent ahead through the very physical reality of living here and now. That is weird. That physical things and everyday life lived through the grid of a servant's heart for the master literally stores up treasure in heaven. Do you get that? How much have you stored up? Have you even thought about that? If my master's on a journey and he's coming back and what's stored up for him that really counts and not what's buried in the temporal earth is what's going to be evaluated, I had better figure out what I'm storing up ahead and how to do that. This, number four, is motivational, I think. You won't get it if you don't see the unseeable. By faith, believing heaven is real, God is there, Jesus is at his right hand, we will really exist there, there really will be an accounting, I really will be called to account for the stewardship of what God has given me. So, how does it work? 
That really motivates me. How about you? I really want to figure that out. But how does this work? Is there like a clipboard in heaven? And every once in a while, when you do something that God notices, and is it really, cha-ching, yeah, put a check mark next to his name. That's good, good, treasure. Is there a bank? You can make draws on a bank account there. Is there a trophy room and you keep getting trophies? Treasures in heaven. I I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I do know that Jesus can keep it all straight in his mind, that he knows everything and he knows every nuance and he knows every motive of the heart and he knows every drive and desire and he knows everything that I've done that nobody else knows that I did for his glory. But how do we lay up treasures in heaven? Let's turn to 1 Timothy quickly, will we please? Because he also, the Apostle Paul, teaches in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that you can do this. You can literally store up treasure in heaven. I don't know exactly what that is, but it's real and I really like it. And I really want to do it. And I really think that corporately as a church, Fellowship Bible Church should be focused, A, on the fact that our master could come back at any time, and B, that we want to invest in eternity so that our master will say to us as a church, well done, Fellowship Bible Church, well done. 1 Timothy 6, notice Paul's teaching in an extensive passage on teaching on money. Let's jump right to verse 17. Right to verse 17, and let me give you three concepts, three concepts that I believe will help us understand how to lay up treasure in heaven. It won't take long, but notice. Paul says to Timothy, when you preach in the churches and when you teach in the churches, command, verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, right? Moth, rust, thieves, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us, he's the owner, we're the stewards, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I'm really glad he stuck that little phrase in there because it's okay to have a bass boat and it's okay to have more than one gun and you're safe and it's okay to enjoy things. Did you see that? God gave us things to enjoy. Enjoy what God has blessed you with. But you better do it with the right attitude command them, verse 18, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, here it is, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, that's the invisible world, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In other words, this isn't truly life, people. This is the illusion of truly life. Truly life is for eternity to come. This is a temporary blip on the screen. And isn't it amazing that this life is all we have to lay up treasures in heaven. Once we're there, we're there. And it's all eternity. Do you see what he says? Look what he says. First of all, it has a lot to do with attitude, doesn't it? It has a lot to do with attitude. I want you to put a word picture in your mind. You know the story well. It's John chapter 6. Don't turn there. John's gospel in chapter 6. And I was thinking about this kid. He's the little boy whose lunch, Philip or whoever it was, waved around. When Jesus, when the disciples came to Jesus, he had been teaching all day and they were in a remote place 
And Jesus said to the disciples, tell these people to go out to the towns and get some food to eat. And they'd been there all day and they were hungry. And the disciples said, Jesus, there are no towns nearby. We can't do that. We've got to come up with some food for them. And Jesus said, well, what do we have? We have some food? We don't know how they got the lunch, whether the disciples snatched it or commandeered it or what, but he has the boy's lunch. Remember, this is the five loaves and the three fishes that the boy had? So some boy's mom had enough sense to send the boy off for the day with a little lunch pack in his backpack. It's all the disciples could produce. Now, I want you to think about that boy and his lunch. His lunch represents all kinds of things to us. The little boy's not the hero of the story, by the way. He's just a punk kid, sniveling kid. We know nothing about him. Ah, but when the master got the lunch, now there's the hero, right? There's the hero. When Jesus gets a hold of it, it's more than a lunch, isn't it? It becomes a banquet feast for the entire 5,000 plus people. He does something with it that they never dreamed they could do with it. The first attitude, though, that you have to have, look what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present world. First of all, let me say this too. Because a whole bunch of people just said, Paul's not talking to me because I'm not rich in this present world. (laughs) Wrong. Wrong. In the context, you are filthy rich compared to the people they were writing to and and these believers who had lost everything they had in the churches. And we're filthy rich. You ever been in a village in the remotest part of Africa and they take an offering and it's embarrassing. You know what they do with the offering? They give it to the American pastor. And you know what the offering amounts to? They get their coins and they bring up and the coin is like one-fourth of a cent coin that they put in. And it represents their meal for the day. Okay? That's these kind of people. But there are rich people, and we're, we're us. It's all of us, everybody. And he says, command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. The first thing you have to do is, number one, you have to start with an attitude of humility. And the attitude of humility is this. This isn't mine. This is God's. God owns everything I have. That'll change your perspective. I have a good friend, Dean Klein over in Martinsburg and he got a new Tacoma Toyota pickup and I thought that was a pretty nice truck. He looked at me and he said, it's not mine. I knew exactly what he was saying. He already dedicated it to the Lord. It was all the Lord's. It's all the Lord's. But you see, we're arrogant. We think we own it. We think it's my stuff. Leave your hands off of it. Like I really like my craftsman shovel, for example. My mother-in-law got it for me for Christmas. I had it on my Christmas list number of years ago before I built my house. I needed a good shovel. It's a contractor grade, really nice spoon shovel, long handled. And Rich Beto left it laying out in the rain out here when he's working on the containers, on the classrooms. And I looked out there. That's my shovel. What's wrong with that guy? That's a Christmas present from my mother-in-law. It's my shovel. You see what I mean? The attitude? Mine, me, leave your hands off it, don't matter. See, it's not, that's not where it is. It's humility. It's, it's God's shovel. So then you can leave it out in the rain because God has everything, right? And I really wasn't mad at Rich and I'm happy for him to use it. I think I'm the one that brought it down here, actually. But that's the attitude, isn't it? You leave it alone. Don't break that. Don't do it. Why? Because you care about being a steward of eternity? No, because you're arrogant and you think you own it and you want it to be yours and it's mine and me and the you got to get rid of that attitude. 
that I, look what God has given me. Humility, number one. Secondly, notice the word about security. Notice the word about, you do not be arrogant and put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. And that's what we do, isn't it? We don't really trust God. We trust the fact that I've got my retirement, my savings account all planned out. I've got my house payments down to manageable. My cars are paid off. Everything's in order. I've got a good health insurance policy. And you, you start popping all that stuff and get rid of all that stuff. And you watch a whole bunch of Christian people just melt down because really we trust in the kingdoms we have built with our stuff. You will never allow the master to have full control of your stuff until you are humble enough to recognize that my security is in God. That's why starting in the next passage in Matthew chapter 6 at verse 25, it starts the whole passage of do not worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what, what you eat. I feed the birds. Don't worry about what you wear. I feed the lilies of the field. I clothe the lilies of the field. That's why the next passage says you can trust me. Now, I recognize that there's a tension in, a tension in this passage, isn't there? We do have to get up and go to work. We do want to take good care of our stuff. We don't want to wreck our stuff on purpose. But why? Because it's a statement about who I am and how I take care of my stuff? No, because I am a steward of what God has given me, and I am trying to use everything I have to store up treasures in heaven. So what does that look like? It looks like that anything I have can be used for God and has been dedicated to God. A treasure in heaven is something that has been dedicated to be used for God. Something that is a treasure on earth has never even been thought about being dedicated to God. By the way, this will help you make better purchase choices on DVDs, music, entertainments, because if you invest yourself in things that everything becomes a lifestyle of dedicating it to God for laying up treasure, you can't go buy Justin Bieber kind of stuff and say, that's a joke from another week, you can't say, I'm dedicating this to God when it's pagan. You can't do that. You can't, I dedicate this day to the Lord. See, we even have days. We're stewards of our days. Do you dedicate your day to the Lord? I can lay up treasure in heaven today. But if you're going to go do wicked deeds, you don't dedicate that to the Lord. A treasure in heaven has been dedicated to God. A treasure on earth has never been dedicated to God. A treasure in heaven is something that I have that I deliberately use for the glory of God, for the cause of his kingdom, for the encouragement of his people. Something that is a treasure on earth is something that I never use for other people. I only use it for myself, and I don't want you to use it because it's mine. A treasure in heaven is something that I clearly understand and regularly remind myself is owned by God. I am just a steward. It is something that I gladly use, loan, give, or expend for the glory of God, for the work of the gospel, for the encouragement of his people, and for the evangelization of the lost. And a treasure on earth is something that I never give thought about that to. So that everything I have is the potter's and everything I have is clay. He can take it, he can use it, he can mold it, do whatever he wants with it. And so, finally, in our passage, the third word is generosity, by the way, but we don't have time to flesh that out. In the 1 Timothy passage, humility, security in God, not things, and a generosity because selfishness puts a lid on treasures in heaven. But back in the Matthew 6 passage, he ends that passage by saying, no one can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So not only is this teaching, this instruction from our master is not only unnatural, countercultural, 
It involves definitely an understanding of the supernatural. It is very motivational, but you need to understand this morning that it is completely optional. It is completely optional. You have a choice to make. You either serve God or you serve mammon. You serve money. It changes everything about the way you think. It changes everything. And it's amazing how everything God has given us that is good, we can enjoy, is easily used for the glory of God. Lawnmowers, bass boats, books, cars, everything. Somebody somewhere can benefit from it. I can share it. I don't need it. I don't own it. I don't hoard it. What would happen to this place if we really started living like this? For one thing, cash flow would go way up because we're not buying $8 shirts that we don't need to add to our collection of 39 shirts. There wouldn't be one of these young missionary couples come in and say, I really wish you'd support us. Well, I'm sorry, we can't. We already gave our 200 bucks for the month. And whenever there's a need, it's like the dam should break around here because this is a room full of very, very wealthy people. And we have been resourced by our master to serve him effectively. And if we're not careful, he's going to come back and we're going to be stumbling in front of him because we're so tangled up in the affairs of this world because we don't live light, we live heavy burdened down with junk. And we're going to have to look at him and say, oh, I never really thought about that. I just kind of got pressed into the mold of the world. This is just what I do. I just get more and more. And I want God to look at Fellowship Bible Church. And I want, I want it to be for the praise and glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel for people everywhere to say, I heard a fellowship Bible church. I heard a fellowship Bible church. They've been, they've been giving away stuff. They got people all over the world serving the Lord. Their community's upside down. They're planting churches. They're reaching people for Christ. They got kids at camp. They got meals. They're feeding the poor. They got clothing for the homeless. They got all this stuff going on. And I'll tell you something. We don't have time to get into it, but you cannot outgive God. He's resourced us for a reason. When he comes back, our master, let's show him that we've doubled it up. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that uh, this area in our lives is really difficult for us because we really love our stuff. We really love our comfort. And we really are easily deceived by all the messages in the world around us. So thank you for the clarity of the master's instructions before he left. That we are not to lay up treasures here. So light a fire under us and begin to challenge us, Lord, and show us what it means to use the physical realities of this life and exchange it into spiritual realities in the next life. Father, we do love you and we're thankful for the gospel and we recognize our frailty and our inadequacies 
and our brokenness. Thank you that you take weak things and you use it. So through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please take us now and take our lives and let them be holy and completely dedicated to you. Continue to teach us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, I pray this week, that we will honestly and deliberately identify these things in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.